Welcome to Grad Chat by PhD Balance, where we talk about topics of grad school beyond academic research that may be more difficult to talk about in our day-to-day. -day. I'm your host, Liesl. If you missed it, we are now pre-recording episodes for release. All episodes are still available via video on the PhD Balance YouTube channel and via audio on all major streaming platforms. And don't forget to subscribe on your chosen platform to get notifications about new episodes. Our topic today is setting your goals and defining success. And I'm so excited to welcome our guest, Erin Berlou, who goes by the pronouns she, her. Erin is a PhD candidate in bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research focuses on making optogenetic tools to control the cytoskeleton, and more generally, thinking about how to use natural photoreceptors to perturb cell physiology. She is also interested in teaching, lab organization and culture, coding, cats, and Wikipedia deep dives. We're so excited to have you on GradChat to uh, discuss your experiences, Erin. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here, Liesl. Um, so one of the first things that uh, we wanted to ask you about was how can you balance your goals with uh, research project priorities? That's a great question. So I think it's really hard in grad school to figure out what you want to get out of the program. So in graduate school, I think it tends to attract people who are very high achieving, who have kind of done all the things they need to do in undergrad to get to the point where they can pursue a PhD. However, once you get to the PhD program, there's a lot of different ways that doing a PhD can look. So you can try to get a lot of experience teaching if that's something you're interested in, or you could try to develop a new scientific method or dive into a really you know, advanced topic within your field. And if you're not careful and don't define what you want to get out of the experience, you can end up pursuing someone else's idea of what your PhD should be. So I think the most important thing is to figure out what your priorities are. So how do you wanna be spending your time? What do you want to learn? Um, and once you've identified those, whether it's, you know, I want to design a class, I want to learn to code in this new language, I want to do mass spec, um, comparing those to the needs of the project can be really helpful. So ideally, if your supervisor is open to this, you can sit down together and figure out, are there places where my needs and the needs of the project align? So maybe there's a piece of data analysis that the lab has always done manually that you can try to write code to automate. Um, or maybe there's an opportunity to do a guest lecture on your research in a course that your advisor is teaching. Um, and then if there's something that doesn't align that you need to do for the project, but doesn't really align with your goals, are there ways to kind of balance that with what you want to be doing? So if you have to get through this portion of the experiments that's maybe not um, ideal to what you want to be getting out of your PhD, can you pair that with once I get this done, I can shadow in this other lab and learn mouse work, for example. Um, so can you balance, you know, I did what I needed to do for the project. Now let's do something that kind of better serves my needs. Yeah, I like that a lot because I think that um, a lot of times, you know, as graduate students, we're kind of stuck um, meeting the research objectives or research aims of whatever grant we're being funded through, right? Um, yes. So being able to say like, all right, like I know I need to do this to get my degree, but uh, this isn't exactly what I'm interested in. Um, you know, how, how do I balance that? That's great. Um, so I think the other part of that leads into this next question really nicely. Um, 
Which is, why is it so important to set your own goals during grad school? Yeah, so like I said, um, you don't wanna do someone else's version of what your life is supposed to be. Um, and it's especially not great when you're doing a PhD, it's supposed to be a training opportunity. So it's supposed to set you up for success in whatever career you want to be doing in the future. And so if you are, if you haven't defined your goals for grad school, you could end up doing what is most useful to other people. And while sometimes that is what needs to happen, you could end up finishing your four to six years of your degree. And there could still be missing pieces that you were really hoping to get out of the experience, but there was never time. Especially when you're in grad school, you are the one who is at the bench or at the computer, not getting compensated in the way that a professor or a program administrator is. And so it's really important to be able to advocate for your own goals. I think there's always room in a research project to make it more relevant to you. Um, and if it seems like there's not, there's probably um, other ways that you can expand the project or work on a different portion of it or work with a collaborator. Because at the end of the day, it's your life, it's your um, training experience. And if you haven't set your goals for what you wanna get out of it, you could end up not getting the most um, valuable experience for what you want to be doing in the future. Yeah, and I like how you said that, um, you know, we're the ones at the bench who aren't necessarily being compensated in the same way that like a faculty or staff member is. Like truly part of our uh, compensation for back of, lack of a better phrasing is uh, getting that training experience out of it. Um, so making sure that that training experiences is really what we want. Uh, so that we can like pursue our career and like life goals. Um, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I like that a lot. Thanks. I think um, we tend to view the mentor-student relationship in different ways at different times. And I think it's important to remember that our research advisors are supposed to be training us. And so when something doesn't work or something fails, it's actually both of our problems. And so um, it's not just that, you know, I messed up this experiment and it's going to mess up the lab. It's actually, you know, a, a group effort and we should all be kind of working together to achieve our goals, whether it's the goals of the lab and trying to get a grant or the goals of the student and trying to um, succeed in the future. And it really does set the lab up for success if the student succeeds, whether that's going into academia, whether that's going into industry, whether it's teaching, whether it's doing science communication and education. Um, one of those is not better than the other and a student going on to do what they are really good at and what they are really interested in should be treated as success by the by the lab advisor. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that sometimes we forget that this is, you know, we're helping our advisors. <laughs> um, you know, our, um, our research advisors also need our research to be able to succeed in their career goals. So yeah, if uh, if something breaks, it's not just our problem. Um, we have support structures there. We should have support structures there. And I think that, um, again, really nicely leads into our next question, um, which is what do you do if your supervisor's goals are different? Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah, so I think it's 
it would be kind of naive of me to say, you know, our goals are always going to align with our supervisor's goals because everyone is different. You know, my goals don't align. You know, I sometimes myself have different sets of goals that don't seem to align with each other. And I'm just one person. And so interacting with your advisor, of course, there's going to be times when there's mismatch between, you know, what they think is the best path for you or what they think is the priority for the grant and what you really wanted to learn. And so I think it's really helpful. Um, especially to, um, in several ways, use the other members of your lab, particularly those who've been there a little bit longer than you, because they probably know how to speak your advisor's language better than you do. And what I mean by this is there are ways that you can frame achieving your goals to be mutually beneficial to you and your advisor or to you in the lab. So while it might be an initial time cost for your advisor to say, okay, take two weeks, do a deep dive on this coding language, or you know, do a deep dive and try to write this literature review, that's an initial time cost, but it could pay off in the long run to benefit everyone. And so figuring out what your advisor thinks is something that's really beneficial, whether it's saving money because you know grants are very difficult to achieve, especially now, <laughs> um, or whether it's saving time or being more reproducible or being able to train an upcoming student um, on what you've learned. Figure out what they think is beneficial and then see if you can parlay what you want to get out of what would actually benefit both you and the advisor. So you could say, hey, I know it's going to slow things down a little bit if I code this whole analysis or, you know, if I switch which antibodies we're using for the Western blot. Um, but in the long run, I think it's going to be better for these reasons, whether that's, you know, when we get data, we could run the analysis the same day because everything would be conserved from experiment to experiment or you know, this is better in line with what the most recently published methods in are, um, are saying we should do, and that would help us publish in the future. I think a lot of times, you know, advisors aren't out to get you and out to say like, no, you can't achieve your goals. It's just that there's a mismatch in communication style. And by putting it in terms that both of you benefit, a lot of times they'll say like, great, go ahead and do it. Of course, that won't always happen. Um, and so some other ideas I have are to use your network. So if there is a lab you collaborate with, for example, could you go and shadow someone there for a week and learn what they're doing? Um, could you, you know, not take time off your project in the same way that you might want to, but shadow someone else in your lab who does the thing you really want to learn how to do? Or, um, talk to another professor, could you potentially TA for their class if your advisor um, thinks it's too much of a time commitment to do a different class? And then as if things really aren't working and your advisor is saying to do one thing and it really doesn't benefit you in the long run, you think, um, get your committee involved, get your program director involved. Their job is to help with situations like this where there's a mismatch between student and advisor. Um, and so by getting someone else involved, they can, um, help you just be another sounding board and help you come up with a plan that benefits everyone and keeps the professional working relationship intact, um, but doesn't feel like you are always the one compromising instead of your advisor. Yeah, and I, one of the things that you said at the beginning of that that I really liked was um, you mentioned approaching it in terms of how it benefits you and them. And um, I think that that speaks to how we as graduate students are intended to learn how to be independent uh, scientists, thinkers. 
um, because it shows that we can put forth that initial effort into thinking about like why it would be beneficial. It can be like a really critical piece of that training process. And so I think that most advisors would be really amenable to seeing like the value and time and thought that you've put into um, that kind of proposal um, before bringing it to them rather than just uh, bringing something random and being like, I should code this. And they're like, okay, but like why and for what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's always easier to come in saying like, here's the plan I'm thinking of doing. And here is what I will do if this step doesn't work. And here is, you know, why I think we should do this rather than kind of coming in saying, well, I don't really know what I want to do, but I have an idea of this. Um, it's often helpful again to bounce those kinds of ideas off older grad students who know like, oh, here is something that will probably go wrong. Um, let's figure out how we can troubleshoot that ahead of time. <laughs> um, but yeah, coming in with a plan, like you said, is always, um, it's usually gonna go better um, because it'll also demonstrate your independence as a thinker and a researcher. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, it, I'm getting the thought of, uh, for those of you who have watched the American Office, um uh resolution episode and michael scott says that he wants a win-win-win outcome and i kind of get that vibe from and with a plan of how it's going to be beneficial to you and your advisor um, yes win-win isn't good enough it has to be win-win-win because they have to win because they also use the conflict resolution finder i love that episode <laughs> yes yeah no exactly yes <laughs> you also win because you use Aaron's super awesome system of coming in with a proposal of how to do this. If you ever need inspiration, I find it helpful to watch a West Wing monologue um, before mm -hmm. going in to present a plan to someone because they always have like really great plans and it just really hypes me up to go into a meeting with my advisor and say like, here's what I'm thinking. Here's the inhibitor we should use. I love it. I'm all for that. I will always draw uh, inspiration from fictional TV characters. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Erin, you also have, uh, or we also have a question here for you about how do you define success when as a grad student, it often feels like everything is failing? Yes. So easier said than done, of course. And I don't know of anyone who has made it through grad school without a lot of things going wrong at different points in the process. And so I think keeping in mind that failing means that you're trying and failure is still progress because you can learn so much from something that didn't go the way you expected. And so I think keeping just keeping that mindset of, you know, it's better to know that this technique or this plan didn't work than to be sitting there with a PowerPoint slide showing how great it is, but you've never actually tried it. Um, so I think it's also important to put failure into your plan to <laughs> succeed eventually. And what I mean by that is thinking about, you know, I there are going to be many steps between me right here and me succeeding at this new thing I want to try. And so figuring out what are the kind of intermediate successes that we can think about. So um, I'll give the example of protein purification because it's something I do a lot of and it's something that has many, many steps that can go wrong. And so I think breaking this, breaking the process up and saying, okay, you know, the protein didn't purify, it didn't get a good yield, but I did get a really good um, 
I really figured out the induction conditions. And I know that when I do purify the next time, there's a better chance because I figured out when to induce the culture. Um, I figured out when, um, I figured out that I'm going to get better conditions eventually. Or uh, now like the protein didn't purify, but I know how to use the machine that purifies it really well and I'm comfortable troubleshooting that. All of those steps kind of go into a success. And I think we forget about that and kind of treat it as like, well, if it didn't go perfectly, it's a failure. When really it's, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of parts to the process that have to go right in order for us to eventually succeed. Um, and so I think it's just important to keep in mind that everything is going to fail at some point. And that sounds really dark, but it's true. And it's also, um, it's just, it's the way it's going to go. So why not plan for that rather than set yourself up for being disappointed when things don't work every single time. It's also, um, in a lab, it's a success in itself to be comfortable working in the lab. So if you, for example, the first time you do a Western blot, didn't know where any of the reagents were and spent two hours looking for everything. And then the next time you knew where everything is and it still didn't work, I would treat that as a little success because it means you're gonna be much more efficient in the future and efficiency will set you up for better progress. So all of these things can be treated as successes as long as we normalize that failure is going to happen to us. Yeah, I like that. I um. I come from an engineering background and uh, there's, there's two kind of quotes I like to think about. One is uh, from Mythbusters actually. Um, <laughs> it's failure is always an option. Um, and I think that really speaks to it. Like it's okay to fail. Like, you know, it's always an option. It, it just is. And uh, the other one is something that uh, we talk a lot about in engineering education, which is fail early and fail often. Uh, that's how we- Yes. <laughs> I know I really think that's I really think that's true it's just you know don't I think it's important to develop the muscle of failing and accepting failure because otherwise it's much harder to pick yourself back up and go back into lab the next day if you are so used to everything working all the time um it's also, I think in science and engineering, especially it's important to step back and realize what you are trying to do. Um, and so <laughs> the example I like to think of is I make protein tools that I put into cells and I bring them to the membrane and they activate signaling pathways and the cells change shape and move. And it's super fun. Um, but when I step back and think of it, it's like, okay, I am putting this piece of DNA in a cell. I want the cell to make the protein and I want the protein to fold in the way I want it to. And then I want it to do this thing in response to light. And then I want all these downstream signaling events to happen. And that's really complicated. And it's a lot to ask of a cell. And it's a lot to ask of me as like a grad student. And so I think by stepping back and saying like, I am working in a science lab trying to do this thing that no one's really done before of course it's going to fail and it's not your fault. And that means you're trying. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, yeah. I think sometimes we're so surrounded by um, all of these awesome, super smart, super successful people who are doing really awesome things that sometimes we don't step back and think like, hold up. I'm literally like trying to change something's biology. <laughs> like that's wild. Um, you know, it, of course they're going to fail a few times. We're still doing like stuff that is absolutely wild. It is. Or it's like, think 20 years ago, if you described what you were doing to a scientist, they would be like, 
why do you think that would work? Why do you think that is going to go according to your plan? You're trying to manipulate biology. It's, and yeah, I think it's so easy to forget because lab culture and um, just the kind of people that are attracted to doing a PhD are very, tend to be very high achieving and very hard on themselves. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, we're going to fail. It's just going to happen. There's, there's kind of no way around it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, and so I think that leads us into our next question again. Um, <laughs> on point conversations we're having. We're doing um, great. <laughs> oh yeah. Let's celebrate that success right now. Um, <laughs> do you have any tips for dealing with imposter syndrome, um, especially around defining and celebrating success? Okay. So again, easier said than done, because I think that everyone has imposter syndrome to an extent. And if you feel like, of course, I'm the best person at this, there might be another issue going on. Um, and so in trying to deal with imposter syndrome, I think it's important not only to celebrate success, but to celebrate failure. And that seems kind of counterintuitive, but I think that if you learn to celebrate or acknowledge or ritualize your failures, it makes celebrating success a little bit easier. There's less of a barrier to entry to celebrate success if you have marked your failures. And so I think a lot of our success or what we define as success or what science Twitter defines as success are things that are often out of our hands. So you could write the best grant ever and it could not be funded because it was a super competitive study section. Or you could submit a conference abstract that's great and the reviewer you got misunderstood your first sentence and it doesn't get accepted. But that doesn't change the work that you put in or the quality of what you did. Um, and so I think the act of submitting the abstract is what we should celebrate or the act of you know, attempting this experiment and trying to do it is what we should celebrate. Um, so I like to, I have a ritual around academic failure, which is, when something gets rejected, I like to eat onion rings because they're amazing. And also it ties this like nice little ritual to something not going well. And it allows me to normalize failure with myself. And then when the thing eventually succeeds, it's like, well, I celebrated it not going well. So I might as well be super excited that it did go well. Um, and it's also fun to think about like, if this doesn't go according to plan, what is the thing that I really want to do? Or what is the treat that I want for myself or the experience I want? Um, and it ties this negative outcome to something that is ritualistic and something that is fun for us. And so I think it makes us a little bit less afraid to fail because we know that we have a plan for what it does. And then when the thing eventually works, that's super exciting um, and you've celebrated the failure, so why not celebrate the success? I think another part of that is reevaluating your progress regularly. So if you feel like you haven't made any progress in lab, think about yourself a month ago or six months ago or a year ago. How much more do you know? How much more terms in your fields can you define? Um, how many papers have you read? How many experiments have you tried that you now feel comfortable understanding how they work? I think through looking back and reflecting, it's easier to see how far we've come, even if it doesn't feel like that in terms of the metrics that we tend to tie to success. Yeah, I like that. Um, onion rings also can definitely support. Yeah, it started as an accident that um, 
I had ordered takeout, including onion rings, and then got an email that a paper was rejected. And it's like, well, at least I have these onion rings. And then it, it was so much fun that it just kind of became a thing. So yeah, highly recommend finding something special that you like that can soften the blow. Yeah, it's, um, it's really funny. Um, for those of you who have tuned in and listened to me before, you might know that I, uh, I also train dogs as a hobby. And one of the big parts behavior management with dogs is uh, something called counter conditioning which is basically I feel like what what we're doing here with the uh, onion rings when we fail whenever I take um, my super reactive dog squee outside um, and she sees something scary like a person um, uh, she gets lots of snacks and so eventually over time she associates the scary human with getting snacks instead and so I feel like we're almost doing that. It's like, oh, well, you know, I got this rejection, but I also get onion rings now. And that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like have, like tell people about it, have a little party. Like my paper got rejected, but let's go get iced teas. Like that could be, that could be pretty fun. And then make it so that other people are comfortable sharing their failure and dismantle this myth that like everyone is doing great all the time and everyone's everything gets accepted and there's never any hard revisions and no one has a bad day it's it's just not true squeak can tell us that humans yeah. are scary it's complicated out there in the world yeah and I also really like what you said about celebrating the success within that failure of like at least I submitted the abstract um, our founder, Susanna, recently tweeted um, when the uh, NSF GRFPs were due um, here in the States um, that, you know, celebrate hitting that submit button because those are a lot of work to submit your NSF GRFP. Um, that is not a trivial grant application and it has to be done independently. Um, and so, you know, yeah, it's really competitive and most of us are not going to get that grant, but hey, we did our darn best. Yeah, and you learn so much from having to put ideas down on paper that even if someone else says, like, I'm not going to give you money to do that, you went through the process. And the next time you're gonna, you go to write something, it's going to be a little bit easier because you've gone through that experience of having to articulate your thoughts. I think particularly with the GRFP, um, it's hard because it's designed for new grad students who maybe are like, what is this project that everyone is saying I'm gonna work on in the lab, but I have no idea what it is. Um, and so I think, yeah, people should be super proud of themselves for even you know, being organized enough to get that done on top of your lab work and getting your recommendations in on time. And all of that stuff is really, you know, it's non-trivial and we treat it like it's something that's just expected of first or second year grad students when it's really a huge accomplishment. Yeah, definitely. All right, and um, kind of our last question here is, how do you stay productive without burning out? Um, my refrain of easier said than done, you know, reemerges. Uh, I think so. My thesis committee chair likes to say that there are seasons in life. And so there are times when he says, you know, you're going to be working a lot and it's going to be pretty stressful. And then there's other seasons when things are going better. It's less stressful, less stuff is due. You get to hang out with your friends and family more. And so keeping in mind that there are going to be seasons when you're super stressed. So I'm writing my thesis right now. It's a lot of work. I'm working a lot. It's just kind of the way it is. 
but I know that in two months it's going to be done and life is going to be a little bit more balanced and normal. So I think the expectation that the work level will be at an even keel at all times might be a little bit misguided, but I think it's important to draw the line between I'm working a lot and I'm totally burned out. I can't keep doing this. This is unsustainable. This is mentally unhealthy. So I think it's important to identify what are kind of your canary in the coal mine or what is your warning sign that you're getting burned out? For me, it's if I go to CVS and try to buy a lot of snacks to keep at work, that implies to me that I am spending too much time in lab that I'm like planning to be eating every, like all my meals there. And that's not okay. Um, also, if I'm like looking at pictures of Siamese cats, that means I'm very stressed and my brain is like trying to shut itself down. <laughs> so ha having those triggers as things that I can recognize, like, oh, this is, this is getting to a place where it's unhealthy and it's burning out. Um, I think that is the first step. When you are not burned out, I like to tell people to make a burnout action plan. So what do you do when you recognize that things are starting to get unsustainable? Is it, you know, you make an appointment with your therapist to talk about it? Is it you mark a date on the calendar a week from now and say, okay, if I'm still really burned out at this time next week, I'm going to take the next day off as a mental health day or just a day to kind of reset things, nap, do my laundry, et cetera. Um, is it, you know, I'm going to go on a trail run. If that's something that feels really good to you, I'm going to, you know, go eat a nice meal by myself, whatever the things are that can help you kind of reset, um, put them as part of your action plan. I think it's also really important to get your support network, particularly those who are not in the grad school bubble to be aware of burnout and to kind of help you through it. So say, you know, if you notice that I've canceled plans three weekends in a row because I say that I'm working, I would like you to step in and say, hey, I think you might be getting a little bit burned out. Let's talk about that and figure out if there's things you can not prioritize this week. Um, getting others to help you is really key, especially if you can get your lab and your advisor on board because everyone gets burned out. Your advisor is probably also burned out if you are, because it probably means something big is due that you're both working on. Um, and so getting everyone on board to support each other and, you know, sometimes taking a day off or taking a few days off can save you so much time in the long run because your brain will work better if you have rested. And then I think it's important to keep in mind that, People say life is what happens while you're busy making other plans, but life is also what happens when you're like waiting for a gel to run or redoing an analysis. It's it's never going to be less busy next week, even though we say it will. And so <laughs> no one else is living your life. And it's important that you're having fun and doing things that are enjoyable and restorative and aligned with the values of what you want to be doing in your life. So if you're feeling like you're burned out most of the time, you know, you, you deserve better than that. And you can, there are a lot of people who are, who specialize in helping you kind of navigate that. So pro, no productivity is worth compromising your mental or physical health. And that's really hard to remember when you're in the moment. So I think being proactive and trying to make a plan ahead of time before you're in that state can be really helpful and really powerful. Yeah, I like that idea of having a plan so that you're kind of ready to go, um, you know, when when it starts happening. Um, and I also feel very called out by the next week is not going to be busy. I feel like academia is just like a, 
um, you know, constantly saying this semester is very busy. <laughs> yeah, but it's also coupled with the but next semester, I can totally yeah. do that thing. Or like when I say, oh yeah, I don't have time now, but in two weeks I will, but I say that to six different people and then two weeks comes and I'm like, what have I done? Um, yeah, we all, we all do that. We're all guilty of that. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's a cycle and, and being able to recognize and kind of break ourselves of it, I think will be better for all of us in the long run. <laughs> yeah, that's why I'm so glad some departments do retreats where people, there's kind of no work allowed where you can, you can talk about research, but no one is, you know, I'm trying to get this grant done, or I'm trying to finish this paper or this analysis. I think having some time away can be really, really helpful. And in the long run makes you more productive because your brain isn't overtired and overtaxed. Yeah, definitely. So Erin, before we finish up, is there anything else that you'd like to mention or talk about? Um, I think that grad students are doing a great job. I think they don't hear that enough probably. And um, so if you are watching this, you're doing great. You're, you're doing all the things of, you know, working toward your degree. And that's really awesome. And I think that grad school is a really difficult time for your mental health. And so if there are, you know, if you feel like you are struggling with that, there's, you know, go to your doctor, go make an appointment with a therapist, talk to a friend who's been through it. Um, you don't have to, it's hard, but you don't have to suffer through it alone. And I think it's, you know, really, it can be really powerful to reach out to your network and talk to someone about the stress that you're under, the feelings you're having. Um, so yeah, I always just like to plug if someone, if someone feels like they are in a, in a rough situation mentally, there are a lot of resources out there to help you and you don't have to feel distressed all the time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Erin. It's been awesome talking with you today. You as well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. This has been Grad Chat by PhD Balance. Our episodes are now posted simultaneously on our podcast and YouTube channel Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. To find our podcast episodes, just search Grad Chat on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can connect with PhD Balance on our website at phdbalance.com or on social media on Twitter and Instagram at phd underscore balance. Until next time, bye and take care of yourself.